Welcome to the Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Immigration reform, permitless carry, parental rights, affordable housing and voting. Well, this is just a few of the areas where there are some big changes around the corner as more than 200 new laws take effect tomorrow, July 1st. Already there's questions about the impact of these new laws and how they'll be enforced. In the case of immigration laws, it remains to be seen how the new rules around E-Verify will affect businesses that rely heavily on undocumented labor, like agriculture, the number two part of the state economy, and construction. We'll be joined by a panel of journalists who've been covering these issues to discuss what these new laws mean for Florida and for you. Weigh in with your questions and comments. Give us a call. Send us a tweet. The number is 305-995-1800. That's 305-995-1800. You can also send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. And we'll get to calls in a few minutes. But first, Eric Friday joins us. He's the lead counsel for Florida Carry, an organization dedicated to advancing the Second Amendment rights of Floridians. Eric, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. So, so Eric, just to get started, can you remind us what this new per- permitless carry law that goes into effect tomorrow does and does not allow? Uh, because it's not open carry, but what do gun owners need to be aware of with this? Well, the first thing it does is you no longer have to get a concealed weapons firearms license, also called a concealed carry permit. Uh, you no longer have to get one prior to being able to exercise your constitutional right to bear arms outside the home. Um, you know, unfortunately, we this licensing law was originally put in place in 1892 specifically to prevent minorities from carrying, and that's what this law has done for years. It's prevented those that didn't have enough money to afford the permit from carrying. It's prevented those who didn't know how to navigate the process. Uh, it really was a, a law that needed to go away. Now everybody has the same rights they do uh, without having to get state permission first. And I, I have, I will say, looked at the the state database of prosecutions and, you know, hundreds of Floridians have been prosecuted under the the law that's, you know, not carrying for carrying without a permit and with with not facing any other charges. Um, I. I do want to ask you, the the Florida Sheriff's Association supports this new law, but not all sheriffs agree. The Orange County Sheriff John Mina says it'll make communities more dangerous. Um, Do you worry that with this permitless carry going into effect that people are not going to take the safety trainings that they are currently doing in order to, to carry concealed? Well, so first of all, there was there was a training requirement to obtain a concealed carry license in the past, uh, but that training requirement uh, included taking a hunter safety course in another state. It didn't necessarily require any proficiency with the firearm. It didn't include a uh, a lot of things that some people might think should be required for firearms training. But here's the problem. We don't require training before you exercise your First Amendment rights, and we shouldn't require training before you exercise your Second Amendment rights. That is an individual responsibility for people who uh, are responsible to go get the training they think they need based on their circumstances. It is not the government's to mandate what training I must get prior to exercising a constitutional right. It's, as the uh, Supreme Court said, the enshrinement of that right in the Constitution takes away from the second branch first branch or the third branch the uh ability to decide whether it's really worth insisting on and that's that's absolutely right um the the training it's you know uh it's not going to be required now but nevertheless i mean we have police departments the the city of miami police department pinellas county sheriff's office they're focused on educating the public about this new law seemingly to avoid dangerous situations in the streets since more people are going to be carrying who do not have that training so well i mean would you discourage people from getting that training no i I would never discourage anybody from getting training but you know to to people like sheriff mina who unfortunately has a history of not respecting the civil rights of his citizens 
Uh, I would say, you know, if he really thinks it's that big a deal, he can do like some of his fellow sheriffs do, and he can offer training classes for free to those in his county that want training instead of making them pay however much a private trainer costs. So there, there are some sheriffs that offer offered the concealed carry class to their citizens for free. Sheriff Mina was never one of them, obviously, but that is a route he can go down if he really thinks training's that important. I don't think he'll find it that important when it comes out of his budget, though. Um, so let me ask you, uh, Eric, about uh, some data from the FDLE. According to the latest report from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, crime statewide is at a 50-year low, and that includes violent crime. So I'm just kind of wondering about the rationale for relaxing gun restrictions outside of your points about the, the Second Amendment rights of Floridians. Well, I would say that it's possible that the uh, crime rates are down because more people are carrying, more people are preventing crimes from occurring. Uh, you know, is, is that just a feeling you have, or is, that, is there some well, data to back that up? Well, I would say that as we have had a stronger stand-your-ground law and a stronger self-defense law in Florida, we've seen that's the time period which we've seen crime rates go down. The uh, research of criminologist Gary Kleck at FSU for decades has shown that liberalization of concealed carry laws, more people lawfully arming themselves against crime, has resulted in numerous instances of lawful self-defense with firearms. And I think it is a reasonable conclusion that the more criminals are, well, back up, the FBI's own data for years ago, they interviewed prisoners about what scared them the most. It wasn't encountering a police officer. It was encountering a lawfully armed citizen. Let me just get a call in here. Um, Joe is calling in from Lakeland. Uh, Joe, you're on the air. Hey, guys. Good good afternoon. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, we've seen a national increase in gun violence uh, Mm -hmm. A lady turning around in the driveway got shot. Uh, a lady, a guy shoots the kid through a door. Uh, it's just, I can go on and on. And this has been on the uptick. Uh, and now let's get to Florida. Uh, there's already cases of road rage on Interstate 4. Very, very crowded road. Uh, there's already been incidents of road rage with gun violence. And, and now you add this to the mix. Uh, and the law is designed where I think there's like a $25 fine if somebody, if your gun is seen. Uh, so it's, there, it, it's really designed to arm everyone. I mean, so what do you, what do we want a society? So, you know, everyone's got a gun on them walking around. I mean, what are we doing, man? This is not, uh, that's not safety to me. Um, Joe, thanks know, for your I'm, call. I'm uh, a gun owner. I'm a gun owner and I'm not for this. Joe, I appreciate your call. Um, Eric, uh, before we let you go, just wondering if you could weigh on that. Your thoughts? Will this make Florida more dangerous? I, I seriously doubt it will make Florida more dangerous. No state, uh, we're 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 behind the curve here. No state that has gone to permitless carry has seen some mass increase in uh, criminal use of firearms. It just hasn't happened. Uh, we've most states have been permitless carry of some type for years. So if we were going to see a problem, you know, we've had law enforcement like Sheriff Mina predicting blood in the streets every time we've liberalized Florida's gun laws. We've seen the same predictions in other states. They just don't come true. These people are using fear to make up things that they think will happen, and it never happens in any of the 20-some-odd other, st other states that have done this same thing. So I think the, the time for the uh, hysteria has passed, and it's time to be honest about it. And the— uh Eric, uh, one one last question here. Um, Florida does remain one of only five states that is not an open carry state. So while a lot of people have raised alarm about this permitless carry law that's about to go into effect, a lot of people criticize it because it didn't go far enough. It, it, it's not open carry. Um, moving forward here, I mean, what's what's your take on what the future law of the land in Florida will be? Are we going to be open carry? Is that your hope? Well, there are active lawsuits for just that reason to get open carry in Florida. Um, it it is uh, we're actually one of only four states now because South Carolina has now allows open carry. That just so, happened. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so so we yes we're we're going to continue. Florida Carry is going to continue this fight. We are going to get the right to open carry because currently there is no right to carry a shotgun or a rifle in the state of Florida outside of your home if you're not hunting, basically. And that is uh, unconstitutional deprivation of that right. Uh, Heller, the Heller decision in 2008 said you cannot say 
it's enough that you, we let one class of arms be carried or owned, therefore we can ban another class. In that case, they allowed rifles and shotguns, but not pistols. So no more than D.C. could ban one in the home can Florida ban one of one class of firearms outside the home just because it allows for pistols. And I think that law is going to go down the same way. We'll be speaking with Eric Friday, lead counsel for Florida Carry. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And let's bring in our panel of journalists for more on this. We welcome to the show Mary Ellen Class, Capital Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Mary Ellen, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Valerie Crowder, reporter for WFSU News in Tallahassee. Valerie, thank you. Thanks for having me. And Tim Gibbons, editor-in-chief of the Jacksonville Business Journal. And Tim, thank you as well. Good to be here. And remember the number to call us, 305-995-1800. You can also send us a tweet. We're at Florida Roundup. Uh, Valerie, let me start with you. You talked to lawmakers and law enforcement officers back in March as this permitless carry bill was making its way through the legislature. And we had a little bit of a sense from our conversation with Eric just now about the some of the back and forth around gun ownership and relaxation of laws. But what sense did you get about the support or opposition to open carry from those conversations you had? Yeah, definitely. I spoke with several gun rights advocates who expressed support for open carry and actually at first felt let down by Governor Ron DeSantis and Republicans in the legislature because when the legislation was first rolled out, it was labeled a constitutional carry bill, and many interpreted that to mean open, permitless carry. Now, DeSantis did tell one gun rights advocate uh, sort of later on in the legislative process before the bill passed that he would support open carry if the legislature would pass it. So that does signal that at least DeSantis is open to uh, open carry. And House Speaker Paul Renner also later expressed that he might be open to um, open carry legislation. Uh, opposition to the open carry uh, proposal, and there was an amendment that was filed that um, ended up failing, or actually not even getting taken up, but um, the opposition to the open carry really stemmed from the law enforcement community in Florida, the State Sheriff's Association, the Association of Police Chiefs, and the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. They all came out against it, and that's really where um, the opposition from legislative leaders uh, came from, or at least their unwillingness to uh, pass uh, an open carry bill. Um, in the case of Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo, um, she also said that she wasn't in favor of open carry just because of uh, the law enforcement community stance on that issue. And t- Tim, I want to bring you into this. Um, is the this permitless carry law, is that expected to have any impact on business in Florida? So it's somewhat unclear. So businesses can't prohibit uh, workers from keeping guns in their cars. Uh, they can stop workers from bringing guns into onto private property. One of the things that um, some business owners we've talked to seem concerned about um, is the idea of trying to stop customers from coming in. So, um, you know, if you're a bar, for example, you're not allowed to carry in a bar, you can carry in a restaurant. Um, I don't think I would want to be the bouncer having the conversation with somebody of no, you can't bring a gun in because they have a gun, um, which makes that situation obviously kind of fraud. I'm reminded in some ways of talking to retailers during the, the depths of the pandemic, when you know we talked to businesses who wanted a state mandate requiring masks because it took the enforcement of it off of their hands it became a ad ah, state law you know it, your fight's not with us businesses don't like it when they have to be the one who is um stepping up and getting in a customer's face and so there's some concerns that those situations could occur and that's not something a business wants to deal with well of course the uh Permitless carry law is just one of many that are kicking in uh, this weekend. Let's turn now to the new immigration law. Among other things, Senate Bill 1718 requires businesses with more than 25 employees to use the federal e-verify system to check the eligibility of new hires, and people who transport undocumented immigrants into Florida could be charged with a felony. The bill signing back in May, DeSantis touted the law as the strongest legislation against illegal immigration anywhere in the country, but others aren't so sure. Here's former Republican state senator Jeff Brandis talking with WUSF this week about the new law. I don't know that it's enforceable in Florida at scale. You know, where is the first arrest on the enforcement side? 
I think it's policy and name only. I don't think that they have really any desire to enforce that at scale. Because if they would force that at scale, you would see most building projects in the state of Florida stop. You would see agriculture in the state of Florida stop. You would see a variety of other challenges that occur across the state. So that's Jeff Brandis there. It's estimated there are more than 770,000 undocumented immigrants here in Florida. The law has sparked protests from immigration rights, immigrant rights advocates rather. There are also reports of migrants fleeing the state out of fear they could be deported or lose their jobs. Uh, Mary Ellen Class, let me bring you into this conversation. I mean, I wonder what kind of conversations lawmakers are having about this new law, about efforts to expand temporary worker programs and enforceability. Yeah, um, you know, it's very interesting because I think that um, Senator, former Senator Brandis definitely underscored the big question here, and that is, what is enforcement going to look like? Um, there's two things that are happening. There is um, evidence that some un- undocumented workers are increasingly leaving the state. There are industries that are very concerned, especially the ag industry, as they uh, reach the harvest season. What will mm-hmm. it look like? Right now, the law applies to new um, hires, so um, they're very concerned about that. Um, and then the other the other thing is lawmakers are basically also saying um, that you know this law is written very carefully. Um, for example, it requires that hospitals report undocumented workers, you know, undocumented um, migrants that arrive in their emergency rooms for care. But you don't if you are asked that question on a questionnaire, lawmakers are saying it's voluntary. You don't have to you don't have to respond. So at the same time, we've got Republican lawmakers who push this bill through. They are also emphasizing the loopholes in it. And I find that very interesting. Um, I had a, a one of the lawmakers was emphasizing that, you know, a lot of companies um are below 25 permanent workers. And so then they don't have to apply by that, the requirements to have the E-Verify. Um, so I think, I think we will see whether this is indeed aggressively enforced or not. Let me just bring Tim uh, Gibbons into this conversation. Do you see a business impact uh, from this, Tim, and what, what are you expecting? Yeah, the people we've spoken to who are very concerned about this are is the construction industry. Obviously, there's the agricultural impact, but you know, covering North Florida, we don't have uh, we don't have that that huge agricultural workforce here. But you know, construction is huge in the state. Um, number of people who are moving here, number of houses that need to be built, and um, we've talked to companies who basically say that workers are either leaving the state or if they're already based outside of the state, don't want to come here. Um, it's not necessarily that they're undocumented. It might be that they have family members who are undocumented. And in some cases, they just don't want to deal with the hassle. So, you know, imagine you're a, a roofing subcontractor from Georgia and you're sending a crew of people to to Florida. Now you have to contend with the idea if somebody is undocumented, that could be a felony. And if you're the worker, you just might say you don't want to be hassled. You can go to North Carolina, you can go to South Carolina, you can work in Georgia. Florida is not the only state that's growing, and the workers are saying they just don't want to. They just don't want to deal with it. Right. Lot going on with the new immigration law about to go into effect. Um, on the Florida Roundup here this Friday, we're discussing some of more than 200 new laws which take effect this Saturday, and we will continue this conversation after the break with our guests Mary Ellen Kloss of the Miami Herald, WFSU's Valerie Crowder, and Tim Gibbons of the Jacksonville Business Journal. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Hurricanes, lightning, flooding, and tornadoes affect the entire state of Florida. And the team of meteorologists from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network keep you informed around the clock. All year long, we're committed to providing in-depth weather coverage, both over the radio and on the mobile app, Florida Storms. The Florida Public Radio Emergency Network is supported by this station and Citizens Property Insurance, online at citizensfla.com. Smoke from wildfires in Canada has large parts of the U.S. under air quality warnings. Meanwhile, in Texas, there's record-breaking heat. It's so hot right now. 
when you walk out the door, you can feel the heat engulf your entire body and you just start to sweat. And we're just over a week into summer. Ahead on Today Explained, coping with extreme heat. Tonight at 6.30 on WJCT News 89.9. Today, pop music is way more varied. And yet, Hollywood can't seem to let go of these 2000 stars and the way we treated them. Why do we keep going back to that moment in pop history where women didn't get to express themselves in their music when they arguably do now? Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Tomorrow at noon on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. And we're continuing our conversation about the new laws that are about to take effect in Florida over this weekend with our panel, Valerie Crowder with FS with WFSU News, Tim Gibbons, Editor-in-Chief of the Jacksonville Business Journal, and Mary Ellen Kloss, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Before we go back to our panel, though, a new union law is going to affect on Saturday. It's SB 256. That law is going to have an impact on most public employee unions in the state. Our co-host Danny Rivero spent some time with the unions that are in a panic about this new law. Danny, real quick, what can you tell us about it? Right. There's two core parts of, of this new law for public sector unions. Um, one of them is that local governments aren't going to be able to take dues out of paychecks, which is a system that's been in place for decades. They're, the unions are going to have to come up with a new payment system. And while the payment system for dues is changing, at least 60% of people in these collective bargaining units are going to have to start paying dues. So it's kind of a, a double whammy there, changing the system and more people need to, to take part. And I spent time with a couple unions that are basically on a, a 911 mode about this um if if they don't get that to that 60% threshold by october they're going to be decertified and and you know mm -hmm. out, out of the 67 counties in florida for example only 22 countywide teachers unions as of last year were past that 60% threshold so a lot of teacher unions could be decertified um I did talk to Carla Hernandez Matz, the president of the United Teachers of Dade here in Dade County. Let's listen to a bite from her. Every day we're getting new members. Um, every day people are transferring over to uh, a new platform. I'll tell you that, you know, at this point, we're probably close to 55% density already. So it's increased in the last couple of months. Not only is this making our educators angry and upset at the attacks that they're receiving, but it's also mobilizing people. So there you have, they're at about 55% now. They need to fight what, what Hernandez Matz told me is an uphill battle to get to 60% or the union could be dissolved. Um, mm. That's, you know, that's, that's what's uh, about to play out in the state of Florida. So we'll definitely be watching to see how it plays out. 305-995-1800 is the number to call. You can also send us a tweet about the slate of new laws set to take effect. You can tweet us. We're at Florida Roundup. Uh, let's talk a little bit about DEI um, and Danny, uh, some new laws taking effect, I guess, around culture war issues this weekend. That's right. There's um, a new law going into effect. We have um, Valerie Crowder with WFSU um, on, on the line. Um, Valerie, can you tell us about what this new law limiting the diversity, equity and inclusion in, in higher education, what that'll actually look like here in the state of Florida when it goes into effect? Yeah, well, there were really two pieces of legislation that in a way dealt with DEI in higher education. Um, there's the bill that actually prohibits colleges and universities from providing state and federal funds to programs that, quote, advocate for diversity, equality and inclusion or promote or engage in political or social activism. So as you can tell there, they did tweak the language of the um, of the legislation a little bit. But the funding prohibition actually does not apply to federally required programs or programs that are required for accreditation reasons or even those that support military veterans. 
And then there was another DEI related measure that basically bars colleges and universities from requiring diversity statements from faculty as part of their application, which is a really common practice in academia. And just kind of looking, you know, at what other states are doing on this issue, there were several attempts made across the U.S. to um, restrict funding for DEI-related programs and initiatives on college and university campuses. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott did sign a, a measure into law this year that was similar to um, Florida's legislation banning funding for uh, these programs. But Again, like I said, that policy did fail in a lot of other states where lawmakers tried to pass it this year. Mm. Mary Ellen, class, uh, previous iterations of DeSantis's anti-woke laws, so to speak, hit some roadblocks in court, right? And you did a lot of reporting on that last year. I wonder how you see this set of laws playing out uh, in real life or in the courts? Well, the legal setbacks continue. Um, just actually in the last week, uh, there have there were three different courts that ruled against the DeSantis administration on their their efforts to kind of impose limitations on LGBTQ uh, rights. For example, there was they, one judge blocked the uh, transgender the access to gender affirming care for transgender adults. Another court mm-hmm. blocked care for transgender children. Um, then you know there's just there's a, been a, a whole slew of these things and. Um, it doesn't seem to really have had much effect, however, on the governor's efforts to talk about that. Um, so even though these laws are on hold, um, the gov- you know, the governor, as he's running for uh, president, is continuing to use this as an appeal to, to his base. And, um, for example, this week he just sent out a bunch of emails, fundraising emails, to encourage people to contribute to his effort to to try and um, pursue these these woke this these kind of culture war issues lots going on and of course we can't forget about the uh, supreme court decision too there interesting to reflect on what kind of impact uh essentially gutting the affirmative action um, laws that have been in place for a college admissions what sort of spin-off effect that may have here in the state of florida uh, not just in academia as well. Let's talk about voting uh, next. And uh, there's uh, um, some new regulations around mail-in ballots, an amendment to Florida's resign-to-run laws. Uh, Valerie Crowder, you covered a federal court hearing this week around this new bill. Tell us a little more about that case and how it played out. Sure. So the big issue with SB 7050 from those who are opposed to it is really about uh, the new restrictions placed on voter registration groups. And that's um, what this case is about right now, ongoing in federal court. And it involves voter registration groups that primarily serve Latino and Hispanic communities, along with several people who work for uh, voter registration organizations. And it really centers on a provision of the new law that bars people who are not US citizens from quote, handling or collecting voter registration forms on behalf of an organization and groups could face a $50,000 fine for each non-citizen employee or volunteer that they have helping with their uh, voter registration efforts. And they're suing in federal court and they claim that the law violates the First Amendment and discriminates against people based on their citizenship status. And the hearing this week was really uh, regarding a motion to temporarily block the law. Um, but And they were hoping, the plaintiffs were hoping to get that before the law takes effect on Saturday, but uh, U.S. District Judge Mark Walker said that he needed more time uh, to work on this uh, before issuing a- an order on the matter. So it's still um, uncertain whether or not this law will be temporarily blocked um, as a trial, conti- as, as there, until there is a trial to determine whether or not this law will be struck down uh, completely. Uh, or these provisions of the law will be struck down completely. But it's definitely a really interesting case. And it's also interesting to see how uh, how much this new legislation is expected to affect uh, voter registration groups. And Mary Ellen, I, I want to bring you in, into this part of it um, with respect to, to voting laws and whatnot. Um, Governor DeSantis touted Florida's elections as a model for other states pretty famously at this point after the 2020 election. 
Um, but since then, he's kind of encouraged Florida lawmakers to consistently overhaul Florida election laws. Um, what, what were the other provisions of SB 7050 um, beyond the citizenship status of, of people who, who, you know, collect signatures and whatnot? Well, uh, the governor has pretty much just continued down the path of what Republican leaders have been doing for the last decade in Florida, and that is restricting, you know, restricting what already have been um, voting access. Um, so some of the things they did is um, using the argument that there was there has been some fraud in mail-in ballots. They've they've. Um, increase the limitations on on how mail-in ballots and, and mail-in ballot um, uh, turn-ins, you know, um, they've limited who can be allowed to return a mail-in ballot. Um, uh, they've and added some, in addition to the third-party registration, they've um, added some other restrictions as it relates to um, voter access, you know, um, and and people who are um, petitioning voters to get, you know, sign up and register. Um, but that is really not all that new. It's it's just kind of continuing what Republicans have been doing for a while. Um, and, it, and it's even though Republicans two decades ago used mail-in ballots really to their advantage, they watched as Democrats have been able to take advantage of that. So they've decided that they they have to restrict restrict it. It's just kind of how uh, election laws are constantly being politicized um, everywhere. It's not just unique to Republicans. Mm -hmm. Lots to talk about. You can give us a call, 305-995-1800. That's 305-995-1800. You can also send us a tweet. Uh, we are at Florida Roundup. And uh, let's go to Reed, I believe. Reed, you're on the air. What's your question? Uh, hello, and thank you. I'm a member of WFSU and a big fan of Valerie and the gang. Sure. Um, Thanks. I want to I say real quickly, I think Eric was probably mistaken when he talked about how... Uh, License to carry has reduced road rage incidents. Uh, mm. According to a story on NPR this morning, uh, this in the states that have license to carry, road rage incidents involving guns have increased. Mm. Now that's that's not me. That's NPR. So, right. but uh, my concern, first of all, is that being here close to the Capitol, I watched this legislature rubber stamp virtually everything the governor wanted. I think most of it was detrimental and in some cases devastating to the state. But I'm curious about the Republican-sponsored bills, some of which passed unanimously with mm -hmm. bipartisan support, that he vetoed. Right. That's a, that's a great question, Reid. Uh, let me ask that or put that question rather to uh, Mary Allen. What do you think about that? There were some vetoes. DeSantis wielding that veto pen quite aggressively in some cases. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, among the vetoes, for example, was you know we talk about uh, uh, opportunity for um, I guess gun crime and reduction of gun crime and legislators in a bipartisan effort included five million dollars for. Um, local communities that want to reduce gun violence, and the governor vetoed that. He's um, he's also vetoed a lot of you know he he some other things that people are sort of perplexed by. There was um, an effort to reduce the cost for state um, state uh, departments and their their vehicle fleet um, by if they can purchase a electric vehicle that over its lifetime would save the state more money, um, that, that that should be an option. And so there was a law that was passed that recently um, that would have done that, and the governor vetoed that. 
what is what has been interesting to watch is that each of these vetoes the governor has issued in the last month, um, he has kind of uh, not done what traditional governors have done, and that is provide his rationale for why he's vetoing. In fact, he has a history of having provided veto letters with explanations. That gives legislators an opportunity to come back and, and address his concerns. Instead, he's vetoing, he's been vetoing these things with zero explanation. And so it's almost as if they're arguing, um, you know, he, he doesn't expect them to, to come back and address it. Uh, so it's, there, there, there were a couple of vetoes uh, in the last week that had almost unanimous approval by the legislature relating to um, criminal justice reform and clearing somebody's criminal record. Um, if they, if, you know, and the governor vetoed those things, but he didn't give an, an answer. So um, he is, he's going against the norm and he's not giving legislators much opening to fix what he's objecting to. In future, um, in future so sessions, I suppose. In future sessions, right. exactly, which has kind of been an interesting development. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Um, last topic I think we're going to hit on these new laws um, quickly is yesterday Governor DeSantis signed a bill that will preempt local housing ordinances, um, local housing laws, if you will. Um, it's expected that HB 1417 is going to undo local renter protection laws across the state, affecting a, an estimated 1.5 million renters here. Um, Tim, I, I want to go to you uh, on this one. Um, what impact is this going to have on rental markets and in metro areas across Florida, like in Jacksonville, for example? It's probably on the marketplace itself, not so much, but it will have an impact on renters. The The big question that is unanswered is what it means for those using Section 8 vouchers. Um, many of the um, local regulations that this is preempting require landlords to, to accept Section 8 vouchers. Um, so the big question is, what happens to those people? Um, I mean, look, we have an affordable housing crisis in the state, and doing things to make it harder on to make renting less advantageous is, is not going to help things. Um, there's also the broader preemption issue, which this is just part of, you know, talking to politicians here who even conservative ones really don't like the idea that the state's coming in and saying that you can't decide how to govern your own city. Right. And here in Miami-Dade County, for example, um, the ordinance we have in place now, it's prohibits landlords from discriminating based on where you get your money. So if you get money from Section 8, they can't discriminate against you. But now they might be able to if, if this is if this is preempted. Um, I want to say thank you to all of our panel members. We've been speaking with Valerie Crowder, reporter for w WFSU News in Tallahassee. And also joining us was Tim Gibbons, editor in chief of the Jacksonville Business Journal and Mary Ellen Kloss, the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Thank you all for coming on. We really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. And coming up in just a few minutes on the Florida Roundup, we're going to be talking about beating the heat as the temperatures soar across the Sunshine State in much of the U.S. and malaria cases reach Florida. Listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Great. Media. For some small businesses, the summertime is slow business season. Right now, um, we're still busy. We haven't slowed up one bit, which is good. I'm Kai Rizdal. How one Detroit frame shop is handling the heat. That's next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6, here on WJCT News 89.9. The Supreme Court has had a busy term and it ain't over yet. The justices have already weighed in on voting rights and affirmative action. Today, they rule on Biden's student loan forgiveness plan and a case involving LGBT couples and a Christian wedding website designer. We'll have news and analysis about those decisions on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at four on WJCT News 89.9. Is this the little girl I carried? 
On the next Fresh Air, we remember lyricist Sheldon Harnick, who along with composer Jerry Bach wrote the musicals Fiddler on the Roof, Fiorello, and She Loves Me. Harnick died last week at the age of 99. We'll hear excerpts of several of our interviews with him. Join us. Today at 1 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. We're less than a month into summer, but temperatures are already soaring and the heat and humidity is palpable. Across the state, high temperatures are reaching the 90s this week. And it feels even warmer with the heat index breaking triple digits in much of the state. That's right. This week, both Miami and Key West experiencing the hottest days on record. Further north in Orlando, cooling centers are being opened to help some escape the heat. And dangerously hot and humid conditions are expected to persist across the state with excessive heat warnings and advisories in place for several areas. Well, the extreme heat poses a threat to us humans, but it's great news for mosquitoes. For the first time in decades, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning of several locally acquired cases of malaria in the United States, including Florida. So how vulnerable are we to future outbreaks of things like malaria? What are local officials doing to help mitigate the risks of rising temperatures? Joining us now to discuss, we have Chad Nielsen, Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at UF Health Jacksonville. And also joining us is Joe Mario Peterson, a health reporter for WMFE in Orlando. Chad, Joe, thank you. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks. For thank you for having me. me. Yeah. And we also want to hear from you on this. How are you staying safe and cool in these hot summer months? You can call us at 305-995-1800 or tweet us at Florida Roundup. So, Chad, let's start with you. Um, who is most at risk when we are experiencing these extremely, extremely hot days of record-breaking heat? Uh, well, anyone who particularly is working outside, spending a lot of time outside, or those of advanced age. So uh, we're looking around our local areas and seeing people who work extended hours having to take extra breaks, making sure they're carrying water. But frankly, the elderly are also very at risk uh, for a variety of health-related uh, reasons. So those are the people we really want to try and protect at most right now. And and what are some of the symptoms of, of heat exhaustion that particularly elderly people, as you mentioned, should be aware of, like when, when, they're, when they're feeling their own bodies. Yeah, uh, extreme fatigue, uh, dehydration, uh, profuse sweating. These are all really easy signs. And then particularly when you get close to something like heat stroke, uh, mental confusion sets in, um, e even uh, just listlessness, so um, not really paying attention or, or listening to what's going on. Those are all some signs that uh, combined with being outside in the heat really cause a concern and action needs to be taken. And Joe Mario, I want to bring you into this. Um, what are officials doing in your area in central Florida to alleviate the risk from from this heat wave? Right. So over in uh, Volusia and Seminole County, we actually saw uh, both those counties uh, start activating uh, these coolness centers. Right. So they're making libraries or uh, community centers uh, more available. I believe in Orlando, the Christian Service Center uh, downtown uh, has set up an extreme heat uh, cooling center uh, inside for anyone to come on in. Um, I believe, as as Chad pointed out, you know, senior citizens are certainly at risk, and that's something that Seminole uh, has taken note of. So Seminole has also started its emergency shelters. They put that in place um, for just in case uh, any kind of like congregate senior living facility. Uh, assisted living facility or nursing home loses power or loses air conditioning, you know, they have a backup uh, for this population just in case. And and how are local municipalities in the state preparing for the increased frequency of heat waves and in, in, in general hotter days? I mean, we know that as climate change advances, we're going to have more and more days hitting these thresholds that are really dangerous. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Um, so to I guess to address that, the National Weather Service has actually lowered the bar for extreme heat warnings and advisories. 
Um, down in Miami-Dade County, uh, previously uh, the NWS uh, would only do so, uh, would only issue these advisories on uh, smartphones uh, when heat indexes rose to 108 degrees or above. Uh, now that advisory will be issued at about 105 degrees, uh, since, like you said, you know we are likely to see uh, this kind of heat more often. Um, the hope is that the new standards will better protect residents uh, from uh, the risks of heat uh, and you know, they're, they're really hoping that they can keep people out of the hospital by doing this. 305-995-1800. That's 305-995-1800. If you want to call in, tell us about your experience of the heat wave and how you cope with it. You can also tweet us. We're at Florida Roundup. Um, let's get a call in here uh, from Laurel in Sarasota. Laurel, you're on the air. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thank, yeah, thank you, and I think it's such a great subject. I was inspired. Um, I, I work outside. I was born mm-hmm. in Sarasota and have done water sports and taught summer camps and uh, uh, done uh, kayak tours and windsurfing, things that you're on the water and you're exposed, but then also the landscaping side of it where you're nowhere near the water and you're even more exposed. And what I found you know, so much is that we discussed one, I think education is the most important thing, the factor. I've seen people in heat exhaustion in numerous situations that I've been in, in these venues that I just mentioned. And mm-hmm. it's almost always because they were completely unaware to begin with that it was a problem. And the, pers- the people around them were also unaware of what they were seeing or how to be behaving preemptively. So I think more so than hydration and more so than first aid, the it's the hydration that we're missing is, shade and cooling ourselves naturally when i was a kid we were told always just we'll go in the hose too too hot to be outside we'll go Mm -hmm. in the hose well we didn't have asphalt and buildings and the uh, and we had rain every afternoon so it was cooling but right now what i found to be the most effective wearing a hat wearing your shirt and wetting those garments wetting your skin wetting each other you know just i mean in when you're in an outdoor water sports type thing or people who are working outdoors Mm-hmm. To have a method to be actually keeping shirts wet. They're going to right. dry very quickly. But if you keep doing that, you're actually able to continue to work in a situation where you otherwise would be putting yourself in harm's way. Laurel, thank you so much. Some great points there. And just a reminder, you are listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Chad, um, some good ideas. I mean, what are some other ways people can kind of monitor their heat levels to uh, call this point, making sure that they aren't suffering those you know, early signs of heat stroke and and, uh, keep themselves cool. Yeah, I I think I agree with Laurel's points there that education is a big part of it. You know, knowing what to look for, uh, you know, the nausea, the the dizziness, the loss of uh, consciousness, those kind of things are the extreme level. But I I think just in general is monitoring your body when you're outside. And if you know you're putting yourself into a situation uh, that maybe you can't take certain precautions, being cognizant of how you feel and removing yourself from that environmental situation so you can bring your body temperature down, get some shade and things like that. So I I think it's just general awareness. We see this a lot in Central Florida uh, as an Orlando native. uh, At the theme parks, we'll get folks from uh, all over the world who are not used to this kind of heat. And so you'll see uh, heat exhaustion and strokes uh, all the time in the theme parks. And it's just that, that key of they might not understand they're heading down that pathway before it's too late. So it's just being aware that it can happen uh, and those steps you can take to prevent it. And, and Chad, uh, one, one thing we're, hap- we're having now is um, the last reported case of locally acquired malaria in the U.S. was in 2003. And now we have some new cases, some of which are in Florida. Um, what should, pe- should people be worried about this? Yeah, so it's a really interesting case of sort of the the old things coming back to haunt us, right? So the last time we saw uh, locally acquired malaria was 2003 in Palm Beach County, actually, uh, where we had uh, eight cases. And so uh, a a variety of factors go into why we're starting to see uh, cases of malaria again. Malaria, yellow fever, these things used to be common in Florida uh, up until the 1900s when public health measures were put in place, you know, mosquito uh, spraying started and we, we understood how better to protect ourselves. But I, I don't think there's any cause for real concern right now. 
That said, most Floridians are very used to those common things that you have to do to keep mosquitoes away from your house, right? Eliminating water sources uh, like uh, rain-filled uh, tires or rain-filled uh, trash can lids. We know to reduce our risk of mosquito bites, those are the simple things that are going to work to to keep these pesky mosquitoes out and therefore malaria and other types of tropical diseases. Right, and and p- part of the concern and the, the, the reasoning, I suppose, is the... As 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 the climate heats up, the the mosquitoes that carry diseases like malaria find the the climate more suitable in Florida. I mean, we have had this to your point in the past, but we're getting there. Again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think the big thing to note is we don't get that usual winter call of mosquitoes when the winters are warmer, uh, right? And I know we've had exceedingly warm winters in Florida the last ten years or so, uh, but we we used to rely on that that cold snap. Uh, to kill some of those mosquitoes and, and therefore the vectors that carry the disease. So as the you know state and the United States and world continue to see impacts from, from global climate change and warming, uh, we're going to continue to see the spread of these types of diseases uh, as a natural consequence. And there are anti-malaria medications that are available. I'll just uh, mention for anyone listening. Matt, you were going to say something? I was just going to say, yeah, should outdoor workers uh, be getting prescriptions just in the last uh, 20 seconds or so, Chad? What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at this time. Antimalarials, although very effective, they've been used in the uh, military for years when we deploy people. Uh, they do have negative consequences in terms of uh, how they make people feel. It makes you have upset stomachs and things like that. I don't think the risk right now to outdoor employees uh, is worth it. We know that they can wear long sleeves uh, that breathe and use deep containing uh, uh pest spray for themselves, and that's going to be better protection than anti-malarials. Mm-hmm. So lots of things to think about, folks uh, in the outdoors who are out there working in the heat, and also people who are prone to or sort of worried about mosquitoes, I guess. The point is to kind of educate yourself and be aware that there are things to do. Protect yourself against the heat and against those mosquitoes. I want to thank both of our guests. Uh, we've been speaking uh, with... Um, Chad Nielsen, Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at U of Health Jacksonville, and Joe Mario Peterson, Health Reporter for WMFE in Orlando. Thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. And that's our show for today. The Profiler Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Bridget O'Brien are the producers. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mayers. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, Jackson Harp, and Isabella Da Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Libos at AaronLibos.com.